Hi there, and welcome to the Credo Fireside Chat, connecting you with interesting people and more personal investment talks. In this edition, Credo's Ainsley Toe, head of multi-asset portfolios, talks with Professor Campbell Harvey of Duke University. Today's topic, cryptocurrency. After an intro, they discuss hot topics such as decentralized exchanges, smart contracts, liquidity pools, and flash loans. This is your podcast. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to another Fireside Chat hosted by Credo Wealth. Uh, for those of you that don't know us, Credo is an independent wealth management business founded in 1998 with assets under advisory of over £4 billion and over 7,000 clients across the UK, South Africa, and the rest of the world. Um, I'm Ainsley Toe, head of multi asset based here in London, and it really gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Um, Campbell Harvey is a professor of finance at Duke University and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He served as president of the American Finance Association in 2016 and as editor of the Journal of Finance from 2006 to 2012. Um, uh, Cam has also been a visiting scholar at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and he's published over 150 scholarly articles on topics spanning investment finance, emerging markets, corporate finance, uh, and many others. Um, he was recently named 2020 Quant of the Year by the Journal of Portfolio Management and number one global top voice in 2020 for finance and the economy by LinkedIn. And over the past seven years, um, Professor Harvey has taught innovation and crypto ventures, which focuses on decentralized finance and blockchain technology. And his upcoming book, DeFi and the Future of Finance, will be published by Wiley later this year. Uh, Cam, welcome. Great to be on. Perfect. And, and where are you speaking uh, to us from today? Oh, uh, I'm in my office at Duke University in North Carolina. Mm, perfect. And, and how have things been over there in terms of uh, the lockdown, et cetera? Uh, actually, it was pretty interesting because Duke was disrupted, but not as much as other uh, universities in that we had uh, a very active testing uh, program all along. So we held uh, in-person classes. So it wasn't all uh, by Zoom or some other technology. Uh, and we are, um, as of August, uh, fully operational in person uh, with all of our students um, vaccinated. Perfect. So so given the uh, the breadth of research and, and your expertise, that there are so many things that we could talk about today, which would be of great value to, to, to our listeners, um, from factor investing, risk management, to asset pricing. Uh, um, but uh, given the current interest and, and your upcoming book, I thought it was very timely to focus our conversation on, on one, one area that you've been involved in for some time, which is decentralized finance uh, and uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, so, so just for members of the audience who are less familiar, uh, you, you were editor of the Journal of Finance, which is the top academic journal in the field. And uh, rightly or wrongly, that is not a background people typically associate with someone who's an early adopter of, of cryptocurrency. So um, how did someone who held one of the most uh, prestigious positions in traditional finance come to be interested in this space so early on? So when you publish in a top academic journal, you have to be very creative because you have to look for big ideas, ideas that potentially change the way that we think about the world. Uh, and when you're editor, you're actually looking for those big ideas. You want to publish the papers that will win Nobel Prizes. So, so being an academic at a, a top university, the most important quality is creativity. And the way that I got interested in crypto is related 
directly to my time as editor of the Journal of Finance. So for six years, I was editor. It's a full-time job because we get maybe 1,500 manuscripts a year. Uh, and these are not easy reads. So it was just, I couldn't teach. Um, it was a full-time job. So when it was over, I decided uh, to go back to teaching my traditional course, which was international finance. And I decided not to use the same notes that I used seven years uh, earlier, uh, but to basically redo the course. Like I threw everything out. And probably most of you remember uh, being taught by the professor that would have slides that were 10 or 15 years old. I didn't want to be that uh, type of professor. I wanted to do new things. So I, I decided to rethink my course. And when I got to the section on uh, foreign currency, I started thinking, well, if I want to do something new, what about adding a module on Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency? So I didn't know much about it. Um, I, I, I don't have a computer science background, though I have published in the top uh, computer science uh, journal, uh, and I definitely uh, am a programmer. Um, but I decided, okay, well, that's gonna be one of my lectures. So I started doing the research to do this lecture. And the more I researched it, the more I realized that this was just a very elegant idea that was under the radar screen that had great potential. And I worked on the draft, our presentation, I reached out to the uh, Duke uh, Computer Science Department for help, but there wasn't anybody working in this space. Uh, then I reached out uh, to somebody at um, the rival uh, university, the University of North Carolina, that then the connection was set up by somebody at, at Duke. And this person was incredibly knowledgeable and, and, um, and was very, very helpful in me putting this presentation together and answering questions. But I was really nervous, really nervous, because I'm going in front of my students uh, and uh, for a two-hour lecture. Usually, we're talking about stuff that I've got multiple publications on that I can answer their difficult questions. But this lecture was going to be different because I'm at a great disadvantage. So uh, this person that I've been emailing with, um, I, uh, I basically said, hey, um, can I come over uh, to UNC and practice the lecture and, and you can critique it? And he says, no, uh, I'll, I'll come over to Duke. And, and I said, oh, well, that's very generous. I couldn't believe uh, they'd be so generous. So I was trying to make it easy. So then um, basically they said, um, what is the closest bus stop to your um, to your uh, university? And then I started thinking, uh, different than big cities, uh, almost everybody drives uh, around my area, but this person's taking the bus. I looked up the faculty at uh, UNC, noticed he wasn't a faculty member. I thought he was a faculty member. So, so I get... Um, and pick them up at the 
the bus stop. This is a student. So, and, and the student is in his third year, so not even a senior. And he was just incredibly um, helpful uh, to me. And we put together this presentation. And I said, well, what's, what's the story um, in terms of you getting a job? And he said, well, I've done enough courses after three years to graduate. Um, indeed, most of the courses were graduate courses. And I said, well, you're applying for a job? And he said, um, no, but um, I haven't applied for any jobs, but I've got lots of offers. And I said, what do you mean? So well, I've got about 10 to 12 offers from all the top tech companies. And this person was a Bitcoin developer. So I do my lecture incredibly nervous. And usually at Duke and most universities, when time is up, all the students just get up and leave. So, it, 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 and, and I, I've been, I've seen that, I've lived through that. I finished the lecture and it was weird because nobody moved. They were just sitting there. And I'm thinking, wow, I guess I really bombed uh, this lecture. Um, and then a few students came up to me after the lecture and more students came up to me and said, this should not just be a lecture, it should be a course. This is the most important lecture that I've had during my education. So not just at Duke, uh, that th it was transformational uh, for my students and to, to get a glimpse of the future like that. So then I built this into a full course um, called Innovation in Crypto Ventures. It is very difficult to teach this material because it depreciates very quickly. So my course from seven years ago doesn't resemble the course of today. Indeed, the course of last year uh, doesn't resemble the course of 2021. And as you mentioned, my course is heavily oriented uh, towards uh, decentralized finance. Mm, no, and you know, you when when you hear Paris Hilton, who's uh, you know notably uh, an advocate of Bitcoin, say that she's an early adopter in a couple of years uh, uh, from a couple of years ago. Well, uh, yeah, seven years is, is is really quite a long time in the space, and as you say, it it moves so quickly, and it's it's very difficult to to keep up. Um, but before diving into you know some of some of the innovations within DeFi and and some of the um, some of the more contemporary things, um, I, I thought it'd be a, a we we'd be doing our our audience uh, an injustice if we didn't spend a little bit of time unpacking um, what blockchain is um in particular you know some of some of the bits and pieces and uh, hashing and and you know the um consensus algorithms and and i do appreciate you you mentioned you know for, for for some of these pieces alone your course spends two and a half hours so it's gonna be quite difficult in a short period of time but but maybe you can ex um you know explain um why why it's such a what such a revolutionary technology blockchain and and how it fits together sure uh, so blockchain is a technology that's been around since 1991. So well before the famous Bitcoin a white paper in 2008. And uh, let me try to explain what it is. So uh, blockchain, think of it as a, as a database. Think of it a, as like an Excel spreadsheet. And you've got a spreadsheet and um, it's gonna be shared. Uh, so it's not just one copy. 
So that's the idea of decentralization or distributed uh, ledger. Uh, so it exists on, on many different computers. And, and the idea is that uh, you can't edit. So if you have an Excel spreadsheet, it's got 200 rows, you can always go and edit row 100. Um, but with blockchain technology, you can only add to the ledger. So you can add a row um, for like 201. So you can actually do that. So the way that this is enforced is ingenious. And it's the reason it's called blockchain. So instead of just having one uh, Excel spreadsheet, think of it as multiple subsheets. And within a subsheet, there are transactions. And it's all plain text. So anybody can see it, it's wide open. But at the end of the subsheet, there is a digital fingerprint that is unique to all of the data in the sheet. And that fingerprint is called a cryptographic hash. So what's interesting is the next sheet or the next block, the first line of that next sheet contains the fingerprint of the previous block. And that's the chain. So think of it as the last line of uh, the previous block uh, is repeated on the first line of the next block. So the interesting thing here is that you've got all these blocks that are chained together, that if somebody in the network goes and edits one of the blocks, then the fingerprint on the last line will change. And it won't match the fingerprint on the first line of next block. The network sees this and basically replaces the corrupted block with the block that has the fingerprint that actually matches. So effectively, what we're doing here is creating this transparent uh, database that has got no single point of failure. Uh, it's redundant in that the same thing is repeated on every single node in the network. But it is a record that uh probabilistically cannot be altered it's set in stone it is like the truth once it's there it's there uh forever the uh i've described a, kind of a, a simple version of this uh it it is a little more complicated in that uh an attacker could potentially go and edit that one block and then just keep on editing all of the blocks uh, forward. So we want to actually prevent that. So, so what we do um, is to make it computationally extremely difficult to go back and, uh, and rewrite history. And, and the way that uh, we do that is in the block, remember I said you've got transactions, and then you take a fingerprint of the block, and it delivers a cryptographic hash, which is just a number. And what the miners actually do, they do two things. The first thing is they gather pending transactions and make sure that all of the transactions are valid. And by that, it means if you're spending uh, some money, you need to make sure that the account actually has the money to spend. So they validate the uh, transactions. And then 
they um, do this uh, cryptographic hash, but before they do that, they add a number called a nonce. And it's just a counter. So you add a zero, a one, a two, a three, a four. But each time you add this number, you do the cryptographic hash. And what the miners are looking for is a very rare hash that's got a lot of leading zeros. Okay, so um, it, it's, and it's computationally intensive to do that. And an analogy would be, uh, you've got 13 decks of cards. Each deck has 52 cards. And you've got a machine that shuffles those 13 decks. And then the machine also allows you to draw the first 13 cards. And what you're looking for are 13 in a row aces of spades. Okay, so that's gonna be a lot of shuffling uh, to get that. And uh, cycling through these numbers, the so-called nonce, which means number um, only once, uh, that takes a lot of uh, computing power. So, so it makes it technologically infeasible to actually go back, edit a block, and maybe pay uh, some cryptocurrency to yourself, uh, and, and then change all of the blocks that happen after that. The amount of computing power is enormous indeed. Um, this, is, uh, this is called a proof of work uh, mechanism. So the work is cycling through all of those numbers, trying to find that very, very rare uh, hash that uh, has got a lot of leading uh, zeros. Um, so this proof of work is used for Bitcoin, it's used for Ethereum, and it is energy uh, intensive and frankly, environmentally reckless. So it, it's kind of interesting that one of the greatest strengths of Bitcoin and Ethereum is that it doesn't make any sense to try to hack. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's the amount of computing power necessary would be so expensive to try to gain control, to gain 51%. It's just not worth it. And then even if you gain the 51%, what are you going to do? So if somebody gains 51%, then the value of the crypto will, will plummet. So it, it's not, uh, it doesn't make any sense to actually do this, but um, it's interesting. Again, this is a great strength of the security, and this is an unprecedented amount of computing power that backs uh, these ledgers uh, to make them secure. So you don't need to worry uh, about a hack of a blockchain um, for the leading uh, blockchains. But it's also a disadvantage in that uh, the environmental cost is very large. And some people have estimated that the environmental cost for Bitcoin is the equivalent uh, electricity of the country of Argentina. So, so that's a, a big disadvantage. But I will say that in my opinion, this is a temporary uh, issue. So for example, Ethereum, which is the main blockchain platform for decentralized finance. So my course is almost 100% uh, Ethereum. I talk about Bitcoin just a little bit. 
So Ethereum will morph to a different consensus mechanism called a uh, proof of stake. And this is vastly more uh, energy uh, efficient and environmentally uh, friendly. Bitcoin, I don't think will ever change from its proof of work. So it will always be uh, intensive in terms of uh, energy uh, input, uh, but things will change. We're already seeing this with um, Chinese, Chinese miners uh, being uh, clamped down upon. And a lot of the, uh, the miners that are drawing fossil fuel-based uh, energy will just be essentially regulated uh, away. And I'm very positive on countries that have what I call locked energy. So Iceland is a good example of that, where they've got essentially unlimited clean energy from geothermal and, and hydroelectric, um, but they can't export it because it's technologically infeasible to lay a cable to Northern uh, Europe, uh, a transmission cable. So they've got all this locked energy. So why not move the mining operations um, to Iceland where it, the energy is not just clean, it's cheap. And indeed, we're, we're seeing that happen already. And people have estimated that 8% of the Bitcoin mining um, is happening in Iceland. And I see that as uh, that country becoming much more dominant uh, in the future. And, and therefore, you solve the, uh, the environmental issue uh, for Bitcoin. And even though Bitcoin will not change from the proof of work, uh, Bitcoin survives and thrives uh, in the future. Hmm. And you know, uh, to, you mentioned Ethereum, and, and and one of the key key differences there is the the enabling of of, of smart contracts. Um, other than some ideological differences with maybe the Bitcoin community and, and and hence the different consensus algorithms, maybe you can talk about if we shift gears to some of the innovations that have happened within within the DeFi space. You know, smart contracts is um, you know one one of those, and and the things that it enables. Yeah, sure. So uh, Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. And it was originally going to be a transaction a mechanism. And famously, the first transaction was buying a couple of pizzas uh, for 10,000 Bitcoin. Um, so that was the vision of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, but it really is not a very good uh, transaction mechanism, at least for small transactions. So... Uh, there's a limited number of transactions that can happen uh, per second. Let's say 10 uh, compared to Visa that can do 75,000. Uh, it's also not immediate. So the blocks are added every 10 minutes. And you usually need to wait a couple of blocks. So it could be uh, quite a while uh, to get a transaction actually uh, into the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. So for small transactions, it's not, it doesn't make a, a, a lot of sense. Um, and Bitcoin is more of a store of value today or a mechanism for large scale transactions. Indeed, during my course uh, this year, there was a Bitcoin transaction for uh, $5.4 billion in a single transaction. And the fee was $17. 
So really, really cheap. So for a large transaction, but if you're doing a small transaction, a fee of $17, that that's just infeasible. So, so again, uh, Bitcoin uh, was the first, uh, it, it's more of a store of value, even though it's very volatile uh, store of value. Uh, the second iteration was the Ethereum um, blockchain. And it's different than the Bitcoin blockchain in that, as you mentioned, we can have uh, contract uh, accounts. So in Bitcoin, you, you've got what we call externally owned accounts that you can transfer Bitcoin from one person to another person or a group of people. Uh, and it's a transactional uh, sort of mechanism. Um, you can do all of that on the Ethereum blockchain, but you've also got the possibility of deploying what's called a smart contract. And smart contracts also been around uh, for quite a while since 1997. Um, but uh, the smart contract essentially is a small computing uh, program and it can have its own address. So this is, uh, it's called a contract address. So this is immediately different than, than the Bitcoin uh, architecture. And these are simple computing programs. It, they reside on, with their part of the Ethereum blockchain, which resides on every node. So it's the same as Bitcoin, every node has got a copy of the database, which is the Ethereum uh, blockchain. And, um, and of course the program that drives it, but it's more than just a simple database. You can actually execute a program and it might be very simple, like a call option. So if the price is above X paid, the difference between the price and X, um, or it could be much more complicated. So it allows for um, computation. The Bitcoin blockchain doesn't currently allow for computation. So some people refer to Ethereum as a, a, a decentralized computing platform or the Ethereum virtual machine. So it actually can do stuff beyond transactions. And that opens the door to what I believe is the most significant innovation, and that is decentralized finance, which uh, allows for uh, interactions, financial interactions. And I'm not just talking about uh, exchanging funds. I'm talking about uh, lending, uh, savings, um, exchange, uh, insurance. Uh, it is um, it is a very large number of possibilities that are are decentralized. So you don't rely upon any broker or uh, or anything like that. Um, this is basically just a program that resides in the Ethereum uh, blockchain. Mm. Because I guess the, the the transparency and and the, the simplicity of 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 having having everything in code it doesn't come with some of the issues we have with natural language and in traditional legal contracts which can you know can be ambiguous from uh, from, from from time to time. Um, but in in terms of how how the smart contracts work, maybe you can talk a little bit about gas and and the importance of that um, in in, sure. in in that ecosystem. Yeah. So 
um, one of the issues here is that somebody could deploy a smart contract or small computing program that just basically runs in what we call infinite loop. And it basically means that every single node on the Ethereum blockchain has got this program running in the background forever. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So uh, in computer science, it's called the halting problem. Um, you want to prevent something like that happening. So uh, in Ethereum invented this idea of gas. And essentially, the idea is analogous to a car. So if you want to drive somewhere, then you need to fill the tank with a certain amount of gas to get from A to B. And uh, if you do have a rogue um, situation, and that would be, let's say, uh, a self-driving car that you lose control of, and uh, it just keeps on going, well, it's not going to go forever. It's going to go until the tank is empty in terms of the gas. So, so it solves this problem of kind of uh, having all of these programs running that are bad programs that are, are, are taking um, all, of the, all of the time um, and processing. So, uh, so gas is a way uh, to deal with that. And um, the gas uh, that you need uh, depends upon the complexity of the transaction. So if this is a simple transaction where I send one ether uh, to you, then the gas fee is very cheap. But if it's a complex uh, transaction where potentially uh, dozens of transfers are, are happening, then uh, the amount of gas that's necessary is larger. The amount of gas just depends upon the computational, um, the, the complexity. It's very straightforward uh, to work that out. The price of gas depends upon market conditions. So if there's a lot of demand, uh, then the price goes up. It's just an auction. So it's, uh, it's a very elegant uh, idea. Uh, there are issues. The gas fees, um, uh, you know, a couple of months ago were really, really high, which meant it was really difficult to transact uh, in terms of small, uh, small things on the Ethereum uh, blockchain. The fees have come down, but they're still very high. And this really has to do with the Ethereum uh, architecture. So remember I said that both Bitcoin and Ethereum use a proof of work uh, sort of method. Ethereum has been working very hard over the past number of years to come up with a different approach that will allow for more transactions per second. So currently they top out at about 30. And again, that's way uh, less than the 75,000 uh, uh, visa. So a number of mechanisms are being designed. Proof of stake is one of them. Um, a, a mechanism to kind of uh, split chains is another. There's layer two technologies. We can talk about if you if you want. Um, 
and and kind of rolling up uh, transactions into like a large transaction. All of these are, are on the table and we will see uh, within a year, and in, in my opinion, uh, a, a vastly different experience for the user where the transaction fees, the, the price of gas goes down uh, very dramatically uh, and the number of transactions per second uh, increase uh, very dramatically. Indeed, there's there are competing chains to uh, Ethereum that have already done some of this stuff. They're already using proof of stake. They're already um, able to do many more transactions per second. So it is it is a race uh, because if Ethereum doesn't transform itself um, within the next year, then people will just move to these other chains, which have significant value uh, right now. So, so it is uh, it is important that again, Bitcoin was originally for transactions, um, but given that it's just really awkward uh, to deal with for small transactions. Um, I think that most of the action will happen in an Ethereum-like uh, blockchain. Mm. And yeah, in, in terms of proof of work versus proof of stake and maybe some of the layer two solutions, maybe, maybe we can come, come back to those um, in a bit. I, I did want to talk about um, some, some uh, decentralized exchanges. Um, so, so for a lot of retail investors, first getting involved in the space, they might buy, you know, some Bitcoin or, or Ether on, on Coinbase or Binance. Um, but of course, they, these are centralized exchanges and, you know, there's they, something very different to something like a Uniswap or, or SushiSwap, which is a, what, what they call a DEX, DEX. So, so um, maybe you can de uh, de describe what a DEX is and how they differ from centralized exchanges and also touch on, you know, the AMM and, and liquidity pools architecture. Sure. Um, so, this is really important that people think that Coinbase and Binance are decentralized finance or DeFi, and that's actually not true. So I call them CDFI, so C-E-D-E-F-I. And what that means is they're in the business of centralized, decentralized finance. So effectively, they're just brokers. So they're no different than traditional brokers other than what they deal with. They deal with um, cryptocurrencies. So uh, so obviously they've been in the news a lot. Uh, Coinbase, extremely successful uh, company and recently IPO'd. Um, so they've done uh, very, very well. But the the competition to Binance and Coinbase are decentralized exchanges, so so-called DEX. And a DEX is basically uh, a computer a program. And it's really interesting because the program doesn't care if you're a buyer or a seller. That's way different than than centralized finance. So centralized finance, uh, there's a price for the buyer and there's a price for the seller and the, the, the centralized institution is taking the spread. So, so these are, are basically uh, 
computer programs and it doesn't matter if you're a buyer or a seller. So you uh, mentioned the automated uh, market maker and that is an example of a program. And uh, essentially somebody will, um, will seed a liquidity pool. And if we're talking about uh, version two of Uniswap, um, you would put an equal value amount of each uh, asset into the pool. And the idea with a, a constant function um, market maker is that uh, there's something called an invariant, which is simply the, the product of the amount of supply of the two assets. And the program runs in a way that that invariant always remains the same. And that delivers the price dynamics. It's incredibly simple. Uh, there's issues uh, with this. Um, and, and some of the issues actually have been solved with the, the recently released uh, version three of Uniswap. And that went operational uh, May 5th. So, uh, and, and, and it's quite a substantial upgrade where uh, if you're supplying liquidity into a pool, then you can actually specify the range of prices that's acceptable uh, to you. So, so now um, the, uh, the pool has got essentially multiple uh, price curves. For the user, uh, you don't even notice this. But for the people supplying the liquidity, you've got that, uh, that range. Uh, it's almost like a, a limit order uh, range. So, so again, I, in my opinion, the major threat to Coinbase and Binance and other centralized exchanges are the decentralized exchanges. Uh, it's a lot cheaper uh, to transact there. Uh, it is also because it's an algorithm you can trade anytime. So this is not a nine to five exchange. This is uh, a 24 uh, seven sort of situation. And that's really important for uh, decentralized finance. So uh, you need to be able to have, uh, have transactions happening at, at any time. And it doesn't matter if it's a holiday or the evening. And these decentralized exchanges uh, they actually uh, do the job. So this is, um, you know, this is a really big idea. So, and essentially what we've got currently with the centralized um, brokers is in my opinion, a temporary uh, situation. And it kind of made sense that we'd have centralized brokers in kind of the first wave of, uh, of, Cryptocurrencies kind of made sense, um, but in the future, we're moving more towards uh, decentralized. And indeed, uh, you can you can basically do almost anything here that is a token. So the token need not be just uh, Ethereum or uh, one of its many. Um, uh, you know, ERC-20s, but these ERC-20s, which is a token based upon Ethereum, uh, they could be backed by all sorts of things, including stocks. So all of the stock trading 
will migrate to tokenized uh, trading on on a DEX. Kind of makes sense. Um, indeed, I'm reminded of a talk I did mm. in terms of one of the uh, leading traditional equity exchanges in the world. Uh, and they invited me to give a talk. Um, and it wasn't really that clear what I was going to talk about. Um, it was more of a question and answer uh, sort of session. But I arrived and the complete board of directors is there, plus all the senior management. And the question to me, the first question is, how long do we have? And I think mm, that's yeah. that's really telling because they see that the business model that they've had for the past 150 years uh, is, is at risk. And uh, what can they do to potentially change to either buy time or come up with a completely uh, different uh, business model? So, so mm. Dex is something that just makes a lot of sense. I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, one additional story, and and this is way back in two thousand and one, uh, and and uh, my partner and I came up with an idea that we thought was um, a good idea, and it had to do with trading foreign currency. So. Um, if you, let's say, need 100 million euros uh, at the end of September, you go to your investment bank and they'll quote your price for that. And then somebody else at the same bank might need to sell 100 million euros uh, at the end of September and the bank will quote another price. And as I said, the bank is making the spread. So our idea was to put those two customers together. And, and we could use the bank uh, in terms of its credit uh, function and pay a small fee, which would be uh, trivial compared to the spread that they were making, but it would be a, a much superior customer experience for, uh, for the, the two customers. Uh, indeed, uh, this idea networked because many of the customers uh, did business with more than one bank. So essentially you put everybody together in a peer-to-peer uh, sort of system that is kind of run by the banks. And, and it was really interesting because think about doing a pitch to that bank's uh, board of directors saying, hey, we want you to spend a lot of money developing this system. We've just got the idea. And, oh, by the way, this will cannibalize one of your most profitable businesses. That's a tough sell, a really uh, tough sell. Uh, but even at the time, um, these leading banks realized that uh, it, it was a matter of time for them because this business model just didn't have legs. Uh, and, and I think that's just in general true uh, in the world of um, decentralized finance, that you can see the disruptions coming and it's very easy 
uh, to see the future in in this respect. Often it's really hard to forecast the future. In finance, it's really hard to forecast what's gonna happen to the FTSE or the S&P 500. But in terms of this technology, it's pretty straightforward. And that's why I've invested so much time in this because I believe this is the future of finance. Indeed, that's the title of my book. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon me to give my students a vision of the future. Uh, mm. that, that is going to help them make decisions. I want my students um, to be disruptors, not disruptees. And, and I think that this innovation is really important. And it's unfortunate that the media focus on the price of Bitcoin. That's the main thing. Oh, Bitcoin dropped. Or there's some new regulations in China uh, about Bitcoin. Or Elon Musk is tweeting about Bitcoin or Dogecoin. And, and all of this is uh, beside the point. You know, these are, are volatile cryptos. Bitcoin's volatility is like five times the volatility of the S&P 500 or gold. They're going to go up and down. But the focus is on that when the real focus should be on the innovations in decentralized finance. Those are, are striking and, uh, and, and essentially could rebuild uh, in a way that is so different than anything we've seen in the past 150 years. I mean, even from, a, from an investor's perspective, so, uh, you know, going back to um, automated market makers and liquidity pools, that system is, is quite interesting because now you can play the role of liquidity provider um, and as a market maker, as, um, as, as long as then, you know, there's, it has its own risks, but being able to deposit into a liquidity pool and earn a fee for, for market making is, is sort of a, a new concept for, for investors. Yeah, it's, um, so it's like democracy and finance. So anybody can do this, even with a small amount. Uh, think about depositing your, your money um, in a bank account. What sort of interest do you get if you get anything? So, uh, so with this system, you can actually buy it. And let's say you don't want to speculate on the value of Bitcoin. Well, you can buy uh, a token that is backed uh, by U.S. dollars. So it's not volatile at all. It's only as volatile as the US dollar. You can deposit that to provide a liquidity and earn a fee. So you actually earn some interest. Uh, whereas you can't do that uh, with our current uh, banking system. So it, it's a very interesting um, that, and, and it makes economic sense. So why is it that the savings rates are really low at traditional banks and the borrowing rates are really high? Well, you're paying for the brick and mortar and, um, and all of the layers of bureaucracy. Uh, you're paying for the insecurity. So the IT spend because of all the fraud and stuff like that. Uh, all of this you're paying for, and that accounts for the large difference 
between the savings and, and lending rates. So suppose you take all of that inefficiency out. Well, what happens? Well, the savings rate goes up and the lender rate goes down. Okay, and, and this is really uh, important. Uh, the other thing is that you walk into the bank and you're a small business person and you're looking for a loan. It might not be a large loan, but it's really important. You're excited. You've got a project. You've done the analysis. It's 20% a year return on investment, which is great. You go into the bank and the bank says, well, it's just not worth it for us to do all the paperwork um, and to get this loan organized. But we'll lend you the money. Uh, here's a credit card and you can borrow on your credit card uh, the amount that you're asking for. So that credit card rate is often 20% or greater. So you look at the, the project, 20% you can make, but 20% you got to pay. And the project's never pursued. And this sort of friction is very damaging for all economies. Because that 20% project, that is the type of investment that we need to make. Because those types of investments lead to robust GDP growth. We are stuck in this real GDP range of 2%, or maybe if we're lucky, 3%. And with the innovations in decentralized finance, it offers the possibility of all of these smaller projects being financed. And when you put all these small projects together, you've got large uh, investment. And it leads to the possibility that we can kind of break out of this two and 3%, which in my opinion is largely the result of the inefficiencies in our uh, financial architecture today and, and move to the sort of growth that we see in some emerging markets. So five to 7%. And this is very important for another reason that has nothing to do uh, with crypto, and that is, that is a way to pay down the debt that um, economies have racked up over the last uh, 10 years. So the best way to pay down the debt is with robust growth. The worst way is to increase taxes or to just print more money, uh, which is also like a tax. So, so I do think that this is important. Uh, in terms of raising economic growth. And right now, our system is constraining the uh, innovation, especially of the small and medium-sized entrepreneurs. Mm. And, and you know, we, we touched on some of the newer things you can do within, with, within DeFi as an investor. So um, liquidity pools, but also a, you, you mentioned lending, uh, stable coins. So on, a, on, on something linked to a dollar whose price attracts the dollar quite closely, you can get multiples of the interest rate that you'd get depositing in a, in a bank account. Maybe looking at some of the more um, traditional techniques within traditional finance and, and, and how many of them, you know, uh, we can apply within, um, uh, within DeFi. Um, so f uh, for a fundamental investor, for example, um, are there any, you know, uh, are, are, are there any things to look at there in terms of how, how, how you can um, get, get a gauge for, a, for the fundamental value of, of, of a DeFi token? Yeah, so it's a real challenge. 
because it's really hard to define the fundamental value of a cryptocurrency. Let's let's take Bitcoin, for example. Um, Bitcoin's got very high volatility. And I believe that part of the reason is that there's disagreement over what Bitcoin should be worth. So you've got one camp that thinks, well, it should be worth $400,000. And the way that they come up with that number is number one, uh, Bitcoin is the new gold. Number two, there's $9 trillion uh, dollars worth of gold that exists in the world. And then number three, divide that $9 trillion by the 21 million Bitcoin that will be mined. And you get approximately $400,000. Know, that, to me, is logically flawed because you, in step number one, where you say Bitcoin equals gold, <laughs> that, that's, you're assuming your result. So it doesn't make any sense, but nevertheless, very uh, high profile people have used that logic. So you've got that one camp. Um, you have another camp of people that believe that the value is zero and strongly believe that it's zero. That it's just a bubble. So um, a bubble is a persistent deviation from fundamental value. So the issue is what is the fundamental value? So um, you might argue that the U.S. dollar uh, today is doesn't really have fundamental value. So it used to be backed by gold, but after 1971, uh, that ended. Uh, but the U.S. dollar's got other features. So it's legal tender. So you have to accept it uh, for payment. Um, you're taxed in, in dollars. And if you don't pay your tax, um, you can go to jail. So there's other kind of levels of, uh, of intangible uh, value that, that uh, give the dollar um, the value that it's got uh, today. So for the cryptocurrency, there's nothing like that. So we can't do the sort of fundamental valuation. So if we're looking at the US dollar versus the pound, well, we can look at the U.S. economy. We can look at the money supply. We can look at interest rates and then do the same thing in the U.K. And we can come up with a range of value. And maybe you disagree with uh, my range, but we both have ranges. Or if we're looking at a stock, we look at the, the price of IBM, for example. And um, we can forecast what the future cash flows look like, the future earnings. You got some idea of the risk and I come up with a range and maybe you come up with a different range and maybe we overlap a fair bit, but we've got a fairly narrow range based upon fundamental value. So for Bitcoin, there's no exercise like forecasting the future cash flows because there's no future cash flows. So you come to this issue that, well, Bitcoin's got value because people believe that it's valuable, which is kind of circular. But I think it's very important to think of not just tangible value, but intangible value. And so much more of our economy today is based upon intangible value. 
So is this a technology that's potentially useful? And the answer is yes. So Ethereum, it's very interesting because the, the tokens on the Ethereum blockchain are now more valuable than Ethereum itself. So Ethereum is this uh, distributed uh, computing platform that actually allows for all of these innovations like decentralized exchange. So, so it's actually providing value in that respect. So in a token that's linked to a DeFi protocol, uh, it's actually providing um, value to the user. So it should have some value that's greater than zero. So I think that it's a mistake to say, oh, well, we can't forecast the cash flows uh, like we can for a stock like IBM. Uh, so there's no fundamental value. Therefore, the, the value of the crypto is zero. It's just a serious mistake because it ignores intangible value. Nevertheless, given the severity of the disagreement, um, we will see uh, volatility as we've seen uh, historically. So I'm not sure if that will ever end, um, but uh, there is a lot of volatility. Mm. So maybe, you know, instead of about equilibrium pricing, pricing, you know, in absolute terms, actually in cryptocurrencies generally, and uh, I thought it, it, it'd be useful sort of talking about something which, you know, maybe a bit a bit more technical um, relative to 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 day to day retail trades would would, would but but uh, just simply because to the DeFi space is is the flash loan. And and uh, some of the uh, interesting things that uh, have opportunities and, and risks there. Maybe you can describe what what flash flash loans are and and how they're used. Sure. Um, and given the poor connection, I heard maybe a quarter of your question. So you might need to repeat it. But let me talk about. Uh, an innovation in DeFi that Apologies. is very, yes. very interesting. Just on uh, flash flash loans and just how they yeah. work. Yeah, so flash loans, What what is a flash loan? So uh, it is a loan that, that you can take out without any collateral. Okay, so that's, that's interesting first because almost all loans, uh, you have to have collateral, a mortgage, you need to pledge your house. So this is a loan that you can take out with no collateral. And on top of that, it's got zero duration. So again, what, what, what does that mean? Like usually um, a loan, uh, when you take it out, the, it's interesting, the, the longer the maturity, usually the rate is higher because there's a bigger chance of, uh, of defaulting. So, so this is a loan that's got zero duration 
And it's also got zero counterparty risk. And the way that it happens is the following. So it happens in, uh, in an Ethereum transaction where the loan is taken out at the beginning and then money is transferred to various different protocols. And then the loan is paid back at the end of the transaction. So, so basically that's what I mean by zero duration. So when the transaction goes through, then the loan is taken and then, um, and then it's used, it's de deployed and then paid back all in one transaction. And it's interesting that if any part of the transaction fails, then you go back to the original stake before the loan was taken out. Okay, so this is way different than the usual thing. People say, well, this is kind of like an overnight loan. So no, it's not an overnight loan. It, it, it happens instantly. And, uh, and again, it's, it's very interesting that there's no uh, counterparty risk. So, so think of this, this could be used. Um, the two main uses would be to refinance uh, an existing loan. So for example, you could refinance your mortgage to try to get a lower rate. And in centralized finance, that's very costly uh, to do. Uh, and indeed, I recently did this and it was remarkable. Um, with the same bank I refinanced and they demanded uh, a title uh, search, even though the bank actually had the title. So, and, and I had to pay uh, the fee uh, for that. So, and, and it took weeks uh, to actually do. So this refinancing would be instant. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's one use of this uh, flash loan. And another use is just uh, arbitrage uh, across different platforms. And uh, essentially you borrow to buy something cheap, uh, you, you buy it, then sell it um, on another platform at a higher price. You take the proceeds, pay back the loan, and then keep whatever's left over as a profit, an arbitrage uh, profit. So this is a, like a really a great idea uh, I feature one of these um, in my class. Uh, it's an amazing uh, set of transactions. Um, it involves 62 different steps. But right at the beginning, there's a flash loan for like $200 million. Okay, so you think about that. Um, remember we, we uh, mentioned this idea of democracy and finance? So in, in centralized finance, the people that are able to take out a $200 million loan, who are they? So the big investment banks, uh, the hedge funds, maybe some of the large mutual funds, that, that's it. But in this space, anybody could do that. Again, there's no collateral unnecessary for this. So it's effectively uh, risk-free. And I want to give uh, like one caution on this and and that is um yes there's no counterparty risk uh there is no collateral there's no um 
you know, other types of, uh, of risk in terms of duration of the loan because it's instant, but there's still risk. Uh, and that is um, what's known as a, a smart contract risk. So there could be a flaw in the contract. So, and the type of flaw that um, could cause problems. But, but again, let me emphasize, if there was a step where there's a failure, you go back to the original um, place. So, um, so there's always risk, but it just basically everybody faces that same risk. And it doesn't matter who you are, a billionaire or uh, somebody with $100 worth of crypto um, that you want to deploy to one of these platforms. Mm, perfect. Yeah, and I'm conscious we're sort of uh, com coming the end to the end of, uh, of our time together but it'd be great as we mentioned you know the space is so it moves so quickly how, how do you yourself like to um uh how do you like to uh keep up within the, with all the innovations and how do you choose what to focus on yeah so this is this is actually interesting because uh it speaks to the problems the regulators face so this is a, a complex technology uh, it was hard for me uh, to learn about this. And what I've learned is basically just scratching uh, the surface. So there's a lot more to learn. So I think of the regulator. This is a complex technology. They invest the time to understand, for example, Bitcoin. And uh, maybe it's a significant amount of time to understand that. But as soon as you come to that understanding, there's a new technology that... Uh, that demands more uh, education. So, so it's really difficult for regulators uh, to keep up. It's also difficult for academics uh, like myself to keep up. Um, this is you know, not a course that uh, is easy uh, to teach because each year the content changes. You can't just use the same slides from previous years, uh, the next year. This year, 85% of the material in my course was new. Okay, so uh, the way that I keep current is, um, well, there are many different uh, aspects to it, but I guess I'm advisor uh, to certain um, crypto ventures, and that's helpful. I see what's happening uh, in the field. Um, I'm a consultant for, um, for an investment fund that actually is pitched all the time in terms of, uh, crypto and has an excellent uh, track record of investing. Uh, there are certain outlets that, um, I follow, you know, daily emails about what's happening, uh, in the space like, uh, the block and digital asset research are, are two very good ones, but there's also Cointelegraph, Coindesk. All, there's many uh, different things like that that are useful in terms of following uh, what is uh, actually going on. Um, and uh, even the uh, traditional uh, news outlets have high quality people uh, covering uh, crypto. So I think of the New York Times, I think of the Wall Street Journal, 
um, they've got uh, high quality uh, assets deployed to this space because they know uh, that it is uh, important. So this is a lot more difficult than just kind of opening the Wall Street Journal and you've got all the information that you need. It is very specialized, very, uh, you know, very technical. So the recent upgrade um, that's proposed for Bitcoin, Taproot, uh, you need to know what the difference between uh, an elliptic curve digital signature algorithm and a sure signature is. So that's, that's not simple, right? I, I teach uh, um, ECDSA in my course, and it's a struggle uh, for my students. But I think it's important because you use it all the time. You use it not just uh, for crypto, but you use it when you interact on the internet. So, uh, so it is really challenging. But the thing that keeps me energized is that I see the scaffolding of a shining new city. And this is nothing to do about renovations of existing uh, financial infrastructure. This is a, a complete rebuild from the bottom up. And for an academic whose mission is to impact in a positive way um, the practice of, of business, this is just ideal. And on top of that, it's early. So we're not even 1% into the DeFi revolution. We're not there yet. And that is huge opportunity for an academic, but it's also an opportunity for people in business. You always want to get in early for an important innovation. And this is really, really early. So that keeps me uh, energized and um, I always want to learn more. And one thing I think I'm pretty good at is knowing what I don't know. And there's a lot I don't know in this space and I want to know and convey that uh, to my students. Mm. Well, that's one thing I can say in terms of my experience, you know, having, having started from zero, I couldn't recommend enough your, your, your Coursera on, uh, on, 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 on blockchain and, you know, getting up to speed with that. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic conversation. I don't know if there's anything um, you, you wanted to add, Cam, before we sign off. Uh, well, I will, given you mentioned that Coursera, I'm working on another one and this will be um, on decentralized finance and it'll be a series of courses. So it'll be a, a whole module. And I hope to launch that simultaneous with my book, um, DeFi and the Future of Finance, which will be launched uh, in the third week of August this year. Fantastic. No, no and, and you know, I, I'm, we, we all look forward to, to reading DeFi and the Future of Finance with, with great interest. Um, so, Cam, thank you again so much for, for your time. It's, it's been wonderful and our audience will really benefit from, from what we've covered. And, and I do want to thank you personally as well, because there, there are very few people in finance whose work um, has been a bigger influence on, on, on me during my, my career over the last decade. So, so you know, we've covered a, full, uh, a small segment of, of, of all, the, all the research you published. But um, yeah, no, it, it's been wonderful. So truly grateful for your, for your time today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation.
And that wraps up this edition of the Credo Fireside Chat. We'd like to thank Professor Campbell Harvey for appearing, and more importantly, thank you for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to invest, please contact us at www.credogroup.com. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.